You're listening to An Educated Guest, a podcast that brings together great minds in higher ed to delve deeper into the innovations and trends guiding the future of education and careers. Hosted by the Executive Vice President and GM of Wiley University Services and Talent Development, Todd Zipper. Hello, I am Todd Zipper, host of An Educated Guest. On today's show, I speak with Ken Oliver and John Kufos. Ken is the executive director at Checker.org, which shares information and best practices and funds new programs to promote fair chance hiring. Before that, he was the executive director of CROP, which takes a holistic, human-centered approach to reentry and focuses on advocacy, housing, and the future of work. John is the executive director at the Taking Action for Good Foundation, which looks to reform the criminal justice system and revamp reentry and rehabilitation. With his lived experience on all sides of the criminal justice system, he helps cities, states, and the federal government optimize reentry systems. The key takeaways from today's discussion are, first, how we can reimagine the reentry experience for formerly incarcerated individuals as a human-centered solution with investments in housing, education, and job readiness. Second, the importance of transforming the prison system from one that punishes to one that reforms. Third, how the practice of second chance hiring in corporate America can provide meaningful job opportunities when coupled with a commitment to right-skilling, justice-impacted individuals. Fourth, the barriers preventing access to online education within the prison system and solutions for breaking these barriers down. And lastly, the concept of civil death and ways in which our society can restore a sense of dignity and belonging for formerly incarcerated individuals. Hi, Ken and John. Thank you so much for being here today with me. Good to be with you. Great to be here. All right. So to start, can each of you please introduce yourself and tell us about your background and your current role? John, let's get started with you. Thanks, Todd. I appreciate it. So I'm John Kufos, and I work on a number of second chance hiring and reentry projects. Currently, I'm the executive director of an organization called Taking Action for Good, which is a reentry policy project, clemency policy project with Alice Marie Johnson, you know, who was granted clemency during the Trump administration and has become, you know, a tremendous advocate in the space. Before that, I led a large project called Safe Streets and Second Chances. It operated in about 90 prisons in seven states. And I've worked with multiple presidential administrations, probably 20-something governors around the country in the healthcare, second chance hiring, education spaces. How I got my start is probably the more interesting part of the story. I'm from New Jersey, although I live in D.C. now, right near you. I lived in Hoboken, as you know, Todd, uh, not too far from your office. And I was a very successful defense lawyer uh, in New Jersey and civil rights lawyer, but I was a completely functional alcoholic. And almost 11 years ago, in the summer of 2011, I was driving drunk, as I so often did, battling alcohol for alcoholism for 20 years. Only this time, I would nearly kill somebody. I would hurt somebody very badly. And thank the Lord they recovered and did not die and, and went on to lead a life and, and went to college, got a career, etc. I hurt them. And then I tried to lie my way out of it before I came off the bender. That was in 2011. For that, that would start my journey to sobriety and to this work. But that path, Todd, would run right through the New Jersey Department of Corrections, a place called Bayside State Prison. So I probably am the, the rare person who was a fairly well-known and, and well-regarded criminal litigator and civil rights litigator, and then ended up having the door closed behind him in a cell. Thanks, John. Really appreciate that. Ken, over to you. Thanks. First, I just want to say, Todd, it's an honor to be here. Thank you for having me. Great to see you again, John. My name is Ken Oliver, and I'm currently the executive director at the Checker Foundation. Checker is a background check company, tech company here in San Francisco, California, and they recently formed a philanthropic foundation and wanted somebody that had direct lived experience from the criminal justice system to lead their CSR initiative. And so they chose me to do so, and I'm very honored and, and privileged to be able to do that. In reference to my own personal story, I did 24 years in several California prisons, almost nine of those years in solitary confinement. And as a result of being in solitary confinement, which was for reading a book about George Jackson, Stanford University and a very big law firm by the name of Mayor Brown came and helped me execute a civil rights lawsuit against the state of California. The state capitulated, 
settled the case, expunged my record, and ultimately let me out of prison as a result. And when I got out of prison, I was tapped by a public interest law firm to do some paralegal work. You know, I'd heard about John and thought I wanted to pursue the law. And after I did that for a couple months, I soon found myself the state policy director, working with California policymakers on criminal justice reform, you know, economic justice, voting rights, et cetera. And then shortly after that, had the opportunity to become the executive director of a very young upstart organization who wanted to reimagine reentry. And after doing that for a little bit over a year, about a year and five months, and a very successful campaign to convince the California legislature and the governor to give us almost $30 million to build out a residential tech-centered reentry program, the first of its kind in the country, I found myself with Checker knocking at my door and, and joined them in November of this year. Thanks, John and Ken. Really appreciate you telling us your stories and providing the context for this dialogue. So the main topic I want to cover today is how do we increase access to the right type of outcomes-driven education and how do we improve the career opportunities for the justice involved? But before we get started, I want to set the stage with some facts so everyone kind of at least has some of the information I have going in. The U.S. incarcerates more people per capita than any other country in the world. Over 7.6 million people in America are currently incarcerated, on probation, or out on parole. And 650,000 inmates are released every year. That's pretty incredible. A National Institute of Justice study found that within one year of release, more than half, 57% of released prisoners are rearrested. Within three years, two-thirds of released prisoners are rearrested. And within five years, almost 77% of released prisoners are rearrested. On the flip side, one study found that with vocational training, the recidivism rate drops to approximately 30%. With an associate degree, recidivism drops to 13.7%. With a bachelor's degree, recidivism drops to 5.6%. And I found this one interesting. With a master's degree, recidivism is basically untraceable. To sum this up, few evidence-based reforms have as much untapped potential as post-secondary education in prison. Incarcerated people who participate in such programs are 48% less likely to recidivate than those who do not. The odds of recidivism decreased as incarcerated people achieve higher levels of education as that math that I just laid out works. In addition, there's also an economic impact that for every dollar invested in education, $4 is returned to the taxpayer. So, gentlemen, first, are these statistics accurate and does this paint a fair picture of the problem? And then second, is it fair to say that educating our prisoners is essential and is actually quite cost-effective to the taxpayers that, that do this. Ken, let's get started with you. Yeah, that's a great, a great analysis of the statistics and the lay of the landscape, Todd. I think that what you laid out was accurate, but what I'd like to be able to preface, if you don't mind, is something that I think actually supersedes the numbers, and that is the reason or the purpose of prison in America. And the purpose of prison in America, at least defined by California's penal code, is to punish And so when we think about education, when we think about workforce development, when we think about vocational training, that typically is not in the same conversation when you talk about prison. And I think that's part of the problem because prisons weren't designed to actually transform people, which is what prison should actually be about. There's plenty of documentaries and and media reports about how Norway and other countries approach incarceration in their country. And so really getting away from this punishment model, this punitive model, I think is key to being able to fix some of these problems that you that you laid out via the statistics. Yeah, and I'd agree with I agree with everything Ken said. And I think, you know, one of the other statistics that isn't there is, you know, we're talking about an $80 billion or more industry in America, right? You're talking there's a lot of taxpayer dollars going into this. And Let's just take a step back for a second, right? If we think of the problem you just laid out, Todd, as if this were a healthcare problem, right? We know, and if this were healthcare, we know that there are certain super utilizers that are in certain communities, have certain social determinants of health that are driving up the cost of healthcare. So we, we can hyper focus, and there's whole industries surrounding this, to hyper focus on services for those populations. Correspondingly, in prison, with those recidivism rates being so high, we know that there's a better than two-thirds chance that the people coming out are going to commit another crime or go back in. 
So they are the super utilizer of the criminal justice system for whatever, you know, we could debate the reasons that is. So when there's a protective factor like education being completely unutilized or underutilized, even in your best places, it's a tremendous gap. And there's a tremendous market, I think, but it's a recent market, Todd. The criminal justice reform movement has obviously been around for a long time, but it really picked up steam probably the last, you know, seven to 10 years, right? When people really started to understand not just the humanity behind second chances, but the business and the public safety reason. Because investments in education and job readiness today will save lives and and people tomorrow. And I'm gonna tell you a personal story. When I was locked up at Bayside State Prison, nobody asked me for money, but almost everybody asked me for a job. They wanted the dignity of work. They wanted to support themselves. They wanted to reunify with their families. They wanted to do all the things that everybody else wanted to do, but they lacked the connective tissue, which so often is education. I think as the market is changing, when I say the market, as we have a more enlightened criminal justice system, we have DOC directors, secretaries, commissioners who are a little more interested in this subject, there's going to be a great space to fill here in the education world. The question is... Will this be a long and sustained change or will this be subject to, you know, crime spikes and crime dips? So I want to take a step back and talk about reentry. Ken, I read a great quote from you that read, people who haven't lived through the reentry experience are creating the policies. And as I mentioned earlier, every year about 650,000 inmates are released from prison. What's interesting about that stat is because I think a lot about colleges, there's about 4 million or so that are released. <laughs> Some would say, you know, college seniors is so to speak on the world here. What is the experience like for these individuals and how does preparing for and finding a job play into this? Sure, that's that's a great, great question. My whole life work and, and experience is based on A, my horrible reentry experience, and B, my call to serve others and fix what I saw as a social problem that really mirrored the prison system itself. And so just real briefly, my own prison experience, when I was released after serving 24 years in prison, I was sent to a transitional facility where I was placed in a five bedroom home that had 17 men living in it, sharing two bathrooms. And I remember walking up to the room and there were five guys in the room and there were three sets of bunk beds. And the first thought that I had is that this isn't any different than a county jail or a prison system. The only difference was it was, it was out there in society. And then several other things happened after that that caused me to realize that there were several breaks and silos in the reentry system and that people were being denied basic human dignity in housing, basic human dignity and access to the knowledge-based and technology-based economy. When I went to prison, Motorola flip phones had just come out. There were no such thing as smartphones. And accessing technology was problematic for me when I first came home. And so when I recognized all of these different gaps and, and I saw some of the same challenges for my friends, I really started to reimagine what reentry looked like. And I was used to be fond of telling people that I was going to build the Stanford of reentry programs where it was high expectation, high touch, high support, and kick people out into a livable wage job where they can make $70,000, $80,000 a year and, and rebuild their lives. That's not what exists today. What exists today are people who exit prison are usually ushered into high labor, low paying wage jobs that can't support themselves in places like New York or the San Francisco Bay Area or Los Angeles County, which in California, that represents about 80% of the prison population comes from those geographical areas. And so I just started to think about what people needed and why we were creating this second tier of citizenship for people who had allegedly paid their debt to society. I mean, the idea of prison aside from punishment, is that you pay back to the state or to the people of the state what you took or what you owe, uh, according to the criminal justice system. But the reality is, is that that's not true. You continue to pay once you exit the prison system. And you carry around, for all intents and purposes, a scarlet letter when you attempt to access employment, when you attempt to access education, when you attempt to access housing or any of the other social services that exist for people. And so really, I think that the way that you 
should approach fixing those things is, first of all, creating a human-centered and holistic solution. And my idea for that is, is what does that transitional stage look like for a guy or a woman who just spent 20 years in prison and given $100 in gate money when they're relieved and dropped off at the nearest Greyhound bus station and said, okay, now we want you to fend for yourself. How do we get people back to where they can viably build or rebuild their lives and then move on from the mistake that they made 20 years ago when they were 20 or 22 or 23 years old and have some sense of dignity and, and, and access economic mobility. So I think it starts out with, A, providing people safe, dignified housing for the first year or two that they get out of prison, just to allow them a reset period, right? Because people need to be able to, what I call detox the prison experience. Prisons in this country are some of the most toxic places on this planet. They're usually fueled by race-based gangs, toxic prison guards, toxic policies that are meant to dehumanize you and break you down. And so to ask a human being who's been subjected to that for 10, 15, or 20 years to get on a Greyhound bus and, and reintegrate back into society, I think it's naive. And I think it contributes to a greater mass incarceration problem and, and recidivism. And so I think that safe housing for people and then really the purpose of this conversation today is providing people the job skills and the education necessary so that way they can present a value proposition back to the community, especially with employers, to access that economic mobility that allow them the opportunity to thrive. That's great. John, I know you've been prolific around second chance hiring, whether it is helping thousands of individuals to find gainful employment or working with government officials or even top employers. Recently, we've seen DEI become a focus for employers and universities, but I think it's important to note that individuals who have been incarcerated are often still left behind and not, you know, viewed in the same way as maybe some of these other DEI populations. What do you think about all of this? That's a great question and one that I think that we're as a country we're starting to confront a little more. When I sat I'm going to just take it back for a second. When I sat in prison, I was sitting in the law library at Bayside State Prison and I would watch people go out to the halfway house and then be sent or the parole and be sent right back because they owed a $100 fine to the Point Pleasant Borough Municipal Court or some little town that they couldn't afford to pay, the complete criminalization of poverty. And I'd watch this cycle go on and on and on. And, and you know, for me, I tried murders and racketeering cases and things of that nature. And I said, how, how the hell could this be a thing, right? <laughs> so I literally asked the paralegal in the prison, an inmate, what was going on. And he started to explain some of those civil legal aid barriers, right, that, that send people back. And when I got out, I had, you know, lost my home in New Jersey. So I lived with a law school roommate, uh, again, in Hoboken first till I got my own place there. And I had a chance meeting with the former governor of New Jersey, Jim McGreevy. And Governor McGreevy, you know, has been tremendous in the New Jersey reentry space in particular. And we ended up building a large reentry program geared towards job readiness and workforce development. And one of the things that was obvious to me in prison and that was obvious to me in reentry is that most of the people we were serving were black, right? So as a principle, as a DEI principle from the beginning, if we accept the obvious truth in this country that people of color are locked up at a disproportional rate in this country, even your standard DEI program will logically bring in more people of color. Right. So you don't necessarily need a special cutout for people who have criminal records, although it would be nice. This was looked at way back as far as 2013. There's a great article for your listeners. And again, it's pre George Floyd's murder, it's pre the racial reckoning that occurred because of that, written by Dr. Brandy Blissett, who's now at University of Cincinnati, and Dr. and Marie Pryor, Dr. Marie Pryor, who's actually now at Microsoft, called The Invisible Job Seeker. And it talks about this very issue right on point, Todd, that this should be its own, they weren't calling it DEI then, but it should be its own category, right? People with criminal records, because the experience is just so unique. And of course, it trends, it trends along the racial disparities in our country. So incarcerated people get left behind beyond that because there's a stigma on all of us. You know, I'm not going to speak for Ken. I'll speak for myself. But, you know, Ken obviously is a corporate leader now. I came from the private sector and had a very successful private sector career. And I don't care whether you're me or Ken or a guy coming out with a GED. 
when you have a criminal record and you're looking for a job, the world is a scary place because of that stigma. And what I think people need to understand is what Ken's done, both with his with the nonprofit he led and leads, as well as his work at Checker, what I've done with governors and presidents across this country and the private sector, is we've created systems to show the country that second chance does not mean second rate. And that is really important. We hear a lot about the labor shortage today, Todd, but we don't actually have a labor shortage. We have a second chance shortage. We don't want, and Ken, none of us want an employer to sacrifice quality, right? What we're telling folks is that you can keep your standards as high as they've always been, but select quality candidates who just so happen to have criminal records. Back to the beginning of our conversation, though, the key is upskilling these individuals, right? And that comes through education, which has been virtually non-existent in most of the prisons. And it comes through comprehensive whole person reentry programs like Ken was describing, like we built in New Jersey and we built in other places. Hmm. I know that certain employers like J.P. Morgan Chase, Slack and Starbucks have really announced a second fairest chance hiring program. Do you see this catching on, right? Do you see this becoming, you know, as you mentioned, this might be the perfect timing with such a labor shortage, especially around some of these livable wage jobs, Ken, you were referring to, that maybe these companies that are become so powerful and profitable will step up and invest here? Well, I hope so. And I think that, you know, one of the biggest companies that did this right you know, many years ago before it was cool to do it, as they say, was Coke Industries. And nobody would have ever thought that Coke Industries was even interested in this issue and they ended up leading on it. And, you know, their great work, I think, really set the tone because between their philanthropic arm and, of course, the corporate arm themselves, they advanced this, this fair chance hiring piece, right? And what fair chance hiring, what we're talking about is making sure that a person with a criminal record is looked at for things beyond their criminal record. Do I think it'll catch on? I think we're on the way. So when you start seeing the JP Morgans and the Microsofts and the CVSs of the world come together with other major corporations and form a second chance business coalition, like you've seen at Business Roundtable, that sends a message, right? That this is something that the big employers are going to invest in. So I do think that the corporate leadership driving this. So now what has to happen is now that we have America's corporate leaders driving this and doing a great job, it's incumbent upon the rest of us who are in the policy space like me, uh, who are in the reentry space, guys like Ken and other advocates to make sure that we help these uh, prisons and jails, supervising agencies and states deliver quality candidates to the corporations, right? We have to do that because if we don't deliver quality candidates to the corporations and what we're talking about is a charity program and that's not that that's not what this is about because again, second chance is not second rate. And I think that the more we come together in these public-private partnerships, the better we're going to do. And one thing I'll just tell you, right, we're at a time right now in this country if Wiley Education, if you came to Ken and I said, John, and Ken, I need X amount of this type of, of person, right? We need them to have these kind of skills. Guys like Ken and I and so many other advocates can go right to the governor, right to the to the prison director, uh, secretary or commissioner and say, hey, listen, we have an employer that wants to do this. We want to put a training program here. Will you let us? And you know what? Better than three quarters of the states, we're going to be successful doing that if an employer wants that. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, there's such a skill gap in, in sort of entry level technology jobs, and you can really work from anywhere, right? So it creates such a nice opportunity where no matter where what state you're coming from, you could probably work for corporations located somewhere else, given just how virtual work has become. So there, there's something there I want to take with you too. Ken, I want to go over to you for a second. Checker, the foundation or the company you're with now, has a fair chance hiring port. And, and some of the stats are really really amazing and, and highlights what John was just talking about, that employees maintain a 79% rate of retention and a 44% promotion rate year over year, which is 30% higher promotion rate than the total employment rate. So it's really impressive as well when you think about this untapped market to a degree, it's just really eliminating that friction that's so systemic right now in the system. Could you maybe talk a little bit about more the Fair Chance Hiring Report and what you've learned from this? Sure. Well, I guess I'd, I'd first like to say that 
most definitely this is a possible solution to the things that you mentioned, the talent shortage and the great resignation. But I want to make sure that we're solving for the right problem. The notion of giving someone an opportunity to rebuild their lives after incarceration or an experience with the criminal justice system shouldn't be based on business needs. It should be based first on the right thing to do. And then as a result of the right thing to do, then, of course, there are many solutions that can arrive from taking that particular stance. And one of those is solving for some of the problems we face now, like the great resignation and, and feeling some of the talent shortage. So I'd like to just preface that, that we, we frame it in a way that is human centered. Because the reality is, you mentioned earlier about the skills gap. And the skills gap is a problematic issue because on the one hand, you have businesses, the Second Chance Business Coalition and many others. I get calls every single week from tech companies and others who want to start fair chance programs. The problem, and John alluded to this earlier, is we don't have the skilled talent to place people in things other than entry-level jobs in most circumstances. And then so the first response that most politicians and policymakers say is, okay, why don't we why don't we put programs inside prisons? And that's great, too. And that goes back to what I prefaced at the very beginning of this conversation is the contradiction and the tension there is that the prison system is not currently designed to transform or rehabilitate folks. And so in California, when I spoke to policymakers last year about taking technology based companies like Oracle, who was interested in going into prison, companies who were open to the Google and, and some of their uh, certification programs going into prison. I was met by the director of corrections and the, and the head person of rehabilitation programs for corrections with the idea that the unions and the prison guards and the teachers unions inside prison had contracts that wouldn't allow outside people to come in and teach and, and, and take over the education system to provide education services. And to give you an idea of what I mean when I say it's not built for that, in California prisons, they're still teaching things like lawnmower repair. They still refuse to allow technology-based certification programs or access to technology in prison. And so what happens in a great majority of cases is that people get out of prison and whatever they learned in prison, whether it's working in the kitchen or whether it's some arcane vocation that they're teaching in the, in the back of the shop somewhere, that rarely transfers over to a livable wage job in society. Even some of the higher credentialed vocations that they teach, they're not certified based on industry standards that happen in the community. And so it's really problematic and people find themselves not able to access anything but those lower wage jobs, which don't provide enough to be able to pay rent, don't provide enough for you to be able to pay for transportation and all of the other things that you need. So what's, what's interesting about the report that we came out with is that we highlighted the fact that formerly incarcerated people or justice impacted people are the most loyal, they're the best employees, they have a low attrition rate, they show up on time, they get promoted at a, at a faster clip. And the reason that you see that is just basic psychology, human psychology, is that when people are treated well and given an opportunity, usually they respond favorably. And then there's this notion that if you treat people poorly, like people usually don't respond that great, right? I've seen that in, even in the prison context, where when you put guys in jobs that pay five to 10 cents an hour, they're stealing everything nailed down to hustle on the side just so they can buy toothpaste and deodorant at the prison commissary versus the guys that go into the industry jobs in prison and they make $1.50 an hour, for example, and they can make $200 a month. Those guys are the first ones there. They skip visits with their family to work overtime on the weekend and they are disciplinary free 90% of the time because they value that $200 a month that they're able to get to provide the basic necessities of life. And it's really interesting because people think this is rocket science. And it's really not. If the opportunities and pathways are provided to most people, right, and I'm, I'm excluding certain pieces of the population there, but for most people, then you're going to get a great result and recidivism will reduce and people will pathway themselves into economic mobility and, and a life free of playing the margins, if you will. Yeah, what really puzzles me and frustrates me is that over the last two decades, the Online education has become ubiquitous and not just any kind of online education, high quality, scalable from every branded university you can imagine and upstart, exciting new type of education providers out there. And a lot of it's free. And I even interviewed someone, uh, the CEO of, of a school called Escoffier School of Culinary Arts, who trains thousands of of future chefs, all virtually. <laughs> it's pretty unbelievable what you can do today. And so this trend, this this movement has emerged 
over the last two decades. And it sounds like we're still doing education the way it was done 30 years ago, right? And as you mentioned, and this excuse that there's a firewall or something like that. I mean, we all give away every document we have to Dropbox and every password to Apple's key. I mean, like, yes, cybersecurity is a real issue, but it seems like we've got great solutions here. So help me understand why we are not bringing this kind of ubiquitous online education. I mean, one thing I, I would think prisoners have, justice involved people have, is time to actually educate. Well, I just, I just want to touch real briefly, and I'll turn it over to John, of something he said earlier about policy. And, you know, I floated the notion, I really think it's, it's time that we pursue privatizing education and vocational opportunities with these boot camps and vocational trainings that exist out in the community into the prison system. Because a prison, in reality, at least most prisons, should mirror a college campus rather than a place where you was punishing and having people language in a closet somewhere. And so if we were able, if we were able as, 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 a, as a community to convince policymakers to say, hey, why don't you let in some of these companies, these private companies that are teaching these boot camps, allow online education, allow technology, then all of a sudden you would see these educational opportunities really flourish inside prison and people would be able to come out with marketable skills that are driven by the market and not teaching things that went out of style 60 years ago. I can't remember the last time I met somebody who said, I fix lawnmowers for a living. And I'm not disparaging that, right? But I just haven't met anybody where that was a transferable skill. So John will probably have some other things to add there. Sure. The first issue I think you have are the politics of the prison, right? Is that and the politics of the prison experience are rooted in a number of things, not, you know, not the least of which is what they consider custody above all, right? So if custody, even though your judgment of conviction when you're sent to prison, the mindset, you know, you're sent to the care, custody and control of the New Jersey State Department of Corrections, I got a lot of custody and control. I don't know how much care I got. And I could tell you, you know, I took electrical trades in in prison and I really did it because it was one of the air conditioned places in the joint. I wasn't expecting to be an electrician, but at least I figured I'd learn something because I don't know anything. And I have a whole bunch of certifications, but I never touched a wire. They gave you a book and, you know, you self-study and obviously I know how to take a test. So, so I probably burned my house down if I wanted to change a light bulb here, right? Similarly, by the way, with your culinary friend, you know, the only thing I know how to make is reservations. So I may have to, to hit you up for, uh, you know, some kind of free pass for that one. But getting to the issue at hand. So the first thing you always hear of is when you talk to state prisons that there's a fear, right, that somewhere in the state prison is, you know, this like super hacker that if you give him or her access to the computer, somehow they're going to tap into the grid and shut down the power of the town, right? And I don't know about Ken's experience, but that certainly wasn't the folks that I met at Bayside State Prison or anywhere else practicing law or any of the prisons I traveled to across this country. So you have that issue, right? Now, there is a valid concern, of course, if you had unrestricted access to the internet, right? People could continue criminal operations, harass victims, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But that's quite easily fixed with proper IT security. There's also the other thing I hear in, in closed doors, statehouse closed doors, is some of my constituents pay for their internet. And why should inmates get it for free, right? Which, again, is not a, an argument that's going to get us anywhere, but at least it, it, it gives some light to the problem. And I'll tell you a, com a private conversation. I won't tell you who it was with, but I had it in the state, and I wanted to make it so this particular state could actually have internet access with appropriate security protocols inside the prison walls. So I went to the head of the CO's union first. So, cause I have a lot of, you know, in this line of work, I have a lot of friends in law enforcement went to the CO's union. And I said, what would it take to get the CO's to buy into this? And to be honest, it was like, ah, we don't want the inmates to have this. We don't want the inmates to have that. And I said, well, what happens if there's a training for your officers to become cybersecurity engineers. So they'll watch the network themselves. They'll be trained. They'll leave with certifications. And then like a light bulb went off. He said, you know what? That might be something we can do. Then, of course, the, the leader of that prison ended up resigning for other reasons. So now we have a new leader of that prison and we're never going to get anywhere with that person. So I bring all that up to tell you that there is a way to do this, right? And I think, candidly, this is a very topical podcast, Todd, because the place that's going to drive this, if it's done right, are the government affairs shops at the ed tech agencies, right? Just as the government affairs shops at other companies that provide services to prisons push to expand in those things, right? Your, your private prison industry, your phone, your food, all of those folks – 
have devoted a government affairs project and plan to operating in a state. So what's going to happen is at some point, there's going to be an ed tech company that's going to seize this opportunity, put a crew together to go and pick a state, not going to pick a giant state like Texas or California or, or Florida or any of those. You pick a medium-sized state with a friendly group of folks starting at the governor's office, preferably with its own office of OIT, Office of Information Technology, and you build it backwards that way as a pilot. And you get a third-party validator. If you do it smart politically, you get the local university. You know, if you did it in New Jersey, you'd get Rutgers School of Criminal Justice to validate the numbers to make sure that you're, you're capturing good numbers. And then you'd have your pilot. And then once you have your pilot, you have your market. And once you have your market... It's off to the races. Is there any way that any of this can go federal in nature, or is it really all state-based, local-based, which obviously makes it a little bit harder to, to scale? Well, the federal prisons only house 100 and whatever, 50, 60,000 inmates. And then the other problem there, I mean, Ken knows this, you know, Ken and I doing reentry and in, in workforce for years, right? You know, a person might be from California, but be housed in Georgia, right? So like their transition is like, eight Greyhound buses to get back to their home state, right? Or a plane ticket. So it's really hard to figure services. So doing it at the federal level probably won't help. Now, what I think could work at the federal level is if they pick a type of federal facility, usually do better with the women's facilities for pilots like this, because women's facilities are usually less violent than men's facilities. And you could do it federally. But if you really want to do it, you really got to do like we've done every other policy thing from the first step back to earn your way out in New Jersey to Mississippi's law allowing uh, parole check-ins by FaceTime. This is pre-pandemic. What you got to do is you got to pick one red state, one blue state, Go do it in both. And when you want to go to the rest of the red states, you say, this is the Texas model. And when you want to go to the blue states, this is the California model. And that's the way you get it done. And that's, Kayla, that's how we've gotten so much progress in this space across a number of areas. But I think ed tech is going to have to realize that if they want to unlock this very lucrative market, they're going to have to invest in it themselves, right, in their government affairs plans. Yeah, one thing when you say lucrative, it, it concerns me a little bit as an ed tech provider, just because it feels like, and I don't know too much about this, but when Pell Grants were allowed to be used by incarcerated folks, you know, a couple decades ago, it really led to some some major issues, right? You know, and I, I don't have specific examples that come to mind, but I know they stopped that program, even though that was really valuable in some ways, and I'm sure some folks got great education that way, but. The challenge is, and let's try to, I'm going to segue to Ken, is that a lot of that education was not linked to a job, right? So it's one thing to say, oh, I can use my my Pell Grant here to get a certificate in business or something like that. But what do I do with that? You know, okay, maybe I have an associate degree now. And that's where I want to, I want to segue Ken to you. And really, maybe you can go a couple inches deeper on this reentry program around 21st century tech skills, because that's the kind of thing that I think goes beyond just, oh, here's some education, but actually here's some education and here's how you, a pathway to getting the right kind of job for your skills. Sure. So, you know, I mentioned earlier a little bit about my own reentry experience, and then I dived headfirst into policy and really learned a lot about the landscape around ban the box laws and, and, and talked to a lot of tech companies and others. And what I realized is that there were three wheels if you will, that needed to turn simultaneously and work together in order to make reentry work in a meaningful way. And the first thing that has to happen in, in the purpose of this conversation we're having today on this podcast is talent development. And that includes education, skill development, soft skills, digital literacy, those types of things. And then the second thing that also has to happen simultaneously is the employer development. How do you teach employers how to make as a baseline of their inclusion practice. We were talking about DEI earlier. You really can't have an equity and inclusion practice if you don't start with the most vulnerable in this society. And the most vulnerable workers in America are the 70 million people that have some type of criminal record, whether it's an arrest record or conviction history, et cetera. And then I think what has to happen when you're able to abdicate and change the narrative there, there has to be this third thing that undergirds both of those other two efforts, and that's a robust policy initiative, both at the federal and the state level, right? So when we developed the model for CROP, which is a holistic and human-centered model that's based on basically, in short, job core for formerly incarcerated people, this transitional period of time that when a person exits prison, 
they're able to have free housing, stipend money in their pocket, and they're taught personal leadership development, financial literacy, digital literacy, and then spend six to nine months learning an actual hard skill that will transition them into the marketplace. Now, that's the talent development piece. While they're going through that, it's incumbent upon us as direct service providers to do the same thing with employers and housing providers. So we actually go in, and I work with Dave's Killer Bread Foundation to go in and teach companies like Coke, like Expensify, like The Gap, like many others that are out there in the Fortune 500 that we've facilitated, where we teach them an eight-week workshop on how to onboard fair chance talent and create fair chance talent programs. What stakeholders to talk to? What type of company culture do you need? What is the nature time nature test of the crime a person committed versus how much time has passed and whether it's even relevant to the job? And then we also developed a program where we do the same thing with affordable housing providers here in the Bay Area. We go in and we go to property management companies and housing providers and we say, listen, based on the efficacy and the efforts of the talent, And now that they're placed at a a livable wage job at $60,000 a year or better here in the Bay Area, we believe that this person deserves a shot to have a key at their own apartment despite their criminal history. And then we tell the story of the person and we talk about the efficacy of the program. And we wouldn't have been able to design that program and create the types of partnerships that we did with big tech companies if it wasn't for policy. Like I took that show on the road and spoke, had hundreds of conversations with California legislatures, spoke to the governor's office, the governor himself, and talked about innovating when it comes to human transformation and possibility, and that we needed to invest in people. California spends $140,000 per person a year to keep them in a cage, right? And less than 2% of that money goes to higher education or workforce development programs. It's like 85% of that money goes to correctional officers, the union, et cetera, and so forth, and, and, and the administration of prisons. So it's really turned into a racket. Right. And so I, you know, I told the legislature, listen, if you give me half of that money, I can make sure a person never goes back to prison again and put them in a a job where they're contributing to the economy, et cetera. It's the age old thing that education trumps, you know, in in the return on dollars, cost benefit analysis. And so I think it's a combination of those three things. I don't think you can do one without the other, because if you if you just do the second chance business coalition stuff and you just do warming employers hearts, then you're left with the problem that we have now is where's the talent that's going to fill the pipeline when somebody's actually ready to start a program. On the other side, if you do the talent piece and you don't have a place for them to land, which is what you were speaking to, Todd, then that person has went through a year or two years or three years of positioning themselves with an education or some other type of certification. They have nowhere to go. And so they end up back in the back of Walmart somewhere anyway with a BA degree in you know philosophy or some other kind of business degree that they get. And you know the only way that you can make both of those things happen because they're expensive propositions is through policy, through tax incentives, through, you know, there's one legislator I was talking to that talked about wage subsidies for a period of two or three years to help incentivize companies to hire justice impacted people, big state budgets who are able to support innovative initiatives and pilot programs to help get people to back to work in a meaningful way. I want to preface because there's a lot of conversation in the space about work. And it's not just work. It's livable wage work. Because if you take the average person at 35, 40 years old who just did 15 or 20 years in prison, the real psychological and economic stressors come when a guy's beating himself to death, getting to an eight hour or 10 hour a day job, and he's not making enough where he can pay rent. He's not making enough where he can take a girl that winked at him out to dinner. He can't afford to put shoes on his kid's feet because he's not making enough money in a place like California. So I like to stress the livable wage piece because it's important that we just don't talk about, oh, I started a second chance program or a fair chance program and you put somebody in at entry level and you think that you've done the job. We're talking about career ladders and access. Here's the key, access to economic mobility. And the reason that that's important, Todd, it's an age old thing that happens in capitalist economies The number one driver of incarceration in this country, mass incarceration, is poverty. It's not bad people versus good people. You're better than him. He lives over there. It's poverty. And when people don't have access to the middle class economy, they do a lot of different things. There are a lot of symptoms that grow from that tree. It's substance abuse. It's domestic violence. It's violence. It's robberies. It's people reaching for things that they shouldn't be reaching for, right? And so those are all symptoms of something that we can fix as a society. We can fix poverty by just desegregating access to opportunity. This issue that we're talking about, especially the recidivism, like you said, give me half of those dollars and and I'll make sure they never come back. We saw in the pandemic trillions of dollars get administered because 
there was such consensus around, we need help, right? So there's this massive problem we're talking about here, and we know the return on investment is there, and yet we can't really get the massive amount of funds to get going here. It's, it seems like I was reading up about, in my home state of New York, these incredible initiatives like the Bard Prison Initiative and Hudson Link in New York. These seem incredible what they're doing in prisons and almost eliminating recidivism, but it's on like a few dozen or a few hundred folks, not hundreds of thousands. And so wh- how, do we, how do we really bridge that gap? Well, I mean, if I can just chime in there, I mean, you know, my favorite thing to talk about is how do we leverage technology to find solutions, right? And you you spoke about that earlier with online platforms, cohort-based learning opportunities. I think that what drives the problem that you just laid out so eloquently is, again, this notion that we've carried in this society that is a holdover from King's England, this notion of civil death, that once you have committed a crime or you have some type of record or have done a certain thing, that basically you're you're dead forever. And, and, and you carry this scarlet letter that in many cases makes people feel like they're dead. I can tell you at, at Checker, people who have been given a job in big tech, and you know, big tech, you, your meals are free, there's gyms in the office space, there's nap places. I mean, people are so grateful and happy to be there. You couldn't peel them off with 10 kitchen knives, right? Because they've been given an opportunity and they feel whole. Right. It's it's not even it's about inclusion at that point. And so people are really grateful for that opportunity. You talk about Bard College, you talk about the programs they have at Columbia University. When people set foot into those programs and are embraced and are allowed to participate, you find a whole different human being. I remember I had a conversation with a woman at Stanford who ran a program called Project Remade, which was an entrepreneurship program a few years ago. You know, I said, let me come over there and talk to you. I just want to do a SWOT analysis with you. What worked, what didn't, what are some of the challenges that you faced? And when I got over there, she spent probably two hours just talking about the impact of people's personality and identity for being able to tell their family and friends that they were actually in a program at Stanford University. It was a weekend program where they were meeting with Silicon Valley entrepreneurs and Stanford professors, et cetera. But the identity change and the the, the self-awareness and the feeling that I'm actually somebody, I belong, I'm embraced by a greater society— is transformational. That, that's even more important probably than the job and the money, right? Is how you make someone feel about themselves, the dignity that you're able to instill by them being included versus excluded. It's amazing how important a feeling of belonging is for human nature. And it's, as you mentioned, poverty doesn't, doesn't help with that at all. And we've got to reverse that. John, any sort of reflections from you? Yeah. I mean, Ken, you know, hit it squarely on the head there. I see it in my own life, right? I mean, there's areas that I'm still excluded from, right? And here I have, I've atoned, you know, on the front page of, of national media outlets, and I've worked every day to try to build a better system for those behind me. And candidly, to make sure that folks have access to the, to the supports they need to prevent crime. And I think that civil death thing is a real thing. And what I think listeners need to understand is, is think about all your listeners right now should think about the thing that they're most ashamed of, whatever that is, right? Think about it in your own head. And then imagine if every time you tried to do something positive in your life, it was that thing that was out on front street, right? And you were judged from that, whatever that is. And I think that that is why the belonging really matters. You know, you go on, you look at especially in tech companies, right? You, you you try to look for job openings on there and you have to go through like nine pages about culture and about how much we love everybody and all these things. You see corporate retreats and all these things. When we used to do that, the New Jersey Reentry Corporation or any of the other programs I've worked for or with, guys look at me and say, why are you showing me this? I'm never going to be invited to a corporate retreat. I'm never going to be accepted by any of these people. None of these people are going to play cornhole or, or axe throwing with me. They'll probably think that I'm going to attack them. Why would you show me things I have no opportunity to ever be a part of? And thankfully, that tide is is slowly turning. And I think that you can't, this tide is slowly turning. And this is why it's so important when you're building these second chance hiring platforms, right, or policies, that you make sure that you really grasp that the person who never got a shot getting that first shot 
is going to save you in employee turnover. It's going to save you in employee loyalty. They're going to stay late. They're going to come in early. And you're going to get people that, particularly in the great resignation, aren't going to run because another employer offers them a few dollars more. These are people that will ride with you all the way. Because if you give them a chance, you can pretty much guarantee you're the only one that's ever given them a chance for most of their life. Yeah, that's pretty powerful. Before we wrap up, there was another statistic that I read that I just need to share that ultimately education does more than reduce recidivism. My understanding that it also reduces violence in prison and more, something like 75% fewer infractions than incarcerated people who are not enrolled in an educational program. I thought that was extremely powerful and reminded me also of a personal story in my own life when it was 2009, my second child was about to be born and I was experiencing stress like I can't imagine I've ever had, especially with starting a business and sleepless nights. And I was watching 60 Minutes and they did a, a special in one of the highest risk prisons in the country in Birmingham, Alabama, around a meditation technique called Vipassana. And almost within a week, I was on a plane to this site down in Georgia and going through the same course that these these prisoners went through because that special changed my life. I watched these frankly tortured souls who are mostly in in for life transform and completely change who they were, how they sort of felt about themselves and their own images. Anyhow, that's my own personal story for me. And I felt like if they could find some peace of mind in the awful circumstances that they found themselves in, I certainly could. But I guess what I'm, I I wish more people would know about that. I'm sure that program still exists in some way, but again, it probably for the minority of people, just like education, people aren't getting enough of it. And so I guess I'm going to walk towards my wrap up here and just give you guys the mic one last time to sort of, are there any things that you want our listeners to sort of walk away from understanding about how education can change lives, can also change our country? Sure. I'll start by saying, I think what's important is for us to understand the humanity of people that are justice impacted and are formerly incarcerated. The people that are incarcerated now are this society's brothers, sons, uncles, fathers of all different races and creeds. 95% of the people that occupy prisons are going to come home back into the community. And so that forces us to ask the question about what type of community members do we want to come back? And are we utilizing and leveraging prison for those who believe in prison in a way where we're getting a return on the investment? Because it doesn't make sense to spend $17 billion in the case of California to lock up 90,000 people when five years ago that budget was $8 billion and the prison population was 30% higher. So the, the, we're on a runaway train of investment into mass incarceration. So I would urge people to advocate to their local policymakers to reinvest that money into community-based programs, to reinvest that money into education programs, and really start to foster a conversation about the purpose of prison. Because if we believe in investing in people and we believe in transformation, which should be the purpose of prison, then when people go to prison, they'll be forced to get a GED. They'll be forced to go to college. They'll be forced to get a certified trade that allows them the day that they walk out of prison to pathway into economic mobility, a job, and and everything else that middle-class America wants on a daily basis. So I think really getting away from and rethinking the retribution model where we throw people away, we other them, and then we say, okay, let's forget about them until they end up coming out 20 years later and, and unprepared, unresourced, and doing something crazy that we all complain about again. It's like this revolving cycle of, of stuff, of the dog chasing the tail that we do. So I, I would encourage a rethinking, a reimagining, and getting away from the way that we like to other people that don't have the same experiences or may not necessarily look like us. Thanks, Ken. The reason that there's less incidences in prison where education and programming is better is because education is hope. Education is hope for a better tomorrow, right? Education is the pathway to a better tomorrow. And I think that Ken, again, hits it right on the head, is that if you know that upwards of 95% of everybody sitting in prison right now is coming home, right? It behooves you 
to invest in these people now, right? And remember, some of these people never had a first chance. We talk about second chance hiring, but some of these people never had a first chance in life. I'm not saying that we should sacrifice accountability. What I'm saying is that accountability and punishment because the deprivation of freedom is the punishment, right? You're not supposed to be sitting in a, you know, you're not supposed to add on dungeon-like conditions or lack of mobility or, or brutality. That's not supposed to be part of your prison sentence, but it was part of all of ours. The deprivation of freedom is the punishment. And I think that as you start to think about it in that context and you start to build programs that lead to jobs, and again, as Ken says, living wage jobs, in those spaces, you're going to have a calmer population, number one, inside the prison. And you're really going to transform our thinking from hard on crime to smart on crime. And smart on crime candidly means soft on taxpayers in the long run as well. Love it. One final question. I ask this of all my guests. Part of what we love about education is that we all have learning champions. Who has been a learning champion for you and how has that person helped you in your life? Ken, you don't have to say me, but you should go for it. <laughs> in my particular case, Todd, I would say there's so many people it'd be difficult for me to identify just one. What I will say, just while we were talking about dignity and, and, and giving people opportunity, is that from the very first day that I got out and started doing policy and legal work for legal services for prisoners with children, the ED there, Dorsey Nunn, took me under his wing and really gave me opportunity to flourish and believed in me and, and instilled faith. And since that time, I've had so many different mentors from all across the country who saw something in me that I didn't even see in myself and it provided pathways and opportunities for me. And so when I speak about the transformational quality of people embracing you, I'm speaking from personal experience. Like I, I didn't grow up with a silver spoon in my mouth. I've been in the streets of some of the roughest places in California. And just the fact that people who didn't share my life experience saw value in me and thought that, you know, I could lead or contribute in, in a meaningful way has done wonders for my own sense of self and really given me a new purpose in life. And it's not just me. I see that happening with a lot of different people at places like the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, places like at Slack, places at like Microsoft, if you talk about Shelley Winter. So there's, there's been just been a tremendous embrace from the community at large. And I, I would I would be doing a disservice if I tried to narrow it down to like one person, because then I would get all my mentors angry at me for not calling them out. Right. But just just that the important piece that the takeaway is people recognizing my humanity and allowing me to feel dignified in the work that I do and the life that I'm trying to rebuild for myself is probably the most important thing that we can do for people who have experienced uh, being justice impacted in that way. This is a really tough question. I mean, the person who obviously comes to mind first is my wife. You know, she works in our space and you know, she works at Microsoft in the Justice Reform Initiative. And we've worked together on reentry long before she had that job. And I think that she opened my eyes to a world that I never thought I could be a part of. Remember, like, you know, I grew up in a family father in and out of federal prison. He actually escaped from federal prison and we were on the run for years when I was a kid. Grew up in poverty. So I'd have to put my wife probably number one professionally. I know yes for one, but, you know, again, you know, Ken and I, uh, you know, we just want to say we, we're going to keep naming people, you know, <laughs> until we run out of time. But professionally, there's really two. One's Jenny Kim. Jenny Kim was general counsel, at Coke, uh, assistant general counsel at Coke Industries. She's now a philanthropy roundtable. Ken knows her well. In fact, she introduced Ken and I. Jenny embraced me when I was in New Jersey and uh, and gave me the ability to operate on a national platform. And, you know, it's a close friend of our family, has become a close friend of our family and just among the most knowledgeable, warm and wonderful people in the movement. And the other would be Jeff Korzenik. Jeff Korzenik, if you don't know Jeff, he's a chief investment officer at, at Fifth Third Bank and author of an amazing book your, your listeners should check out called Untapped Talent, which makes the business case for second chance hiring. Untapped Talent doesn't look at this as a charity, doesn't look at this as a social program, says this is the business case. And you'll appreciate Jeff as well. He was married in Church Square Park in Hoboken. Lisa's Deli actually catered his wedding many years ago. He told us, we just literally on a call yesterday and he shared that story. And he was married by the mayor of Hoboken, who then went to jail like every other mayor of Hoboken. <laughs> I was about to say, that's a good way to end it. I don't know about that. <laughs>
John's going to get me in trouble now because both of those people have been big mentors in my life. And I have the utmost respect for both of them. I mean, I was just on a call with Jenny the other day telling her how much I appreciate her mentorship and I didn't call out the name. So, John, you you, you won up me once again. I got to <laughs> give it to you, brother. Uh, <laughs> That's the velvet glove. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here today. You know, you really enlightened me. I believe you'll enlighten our audience on really such, I think, one of the most important issues of our of our time. And if we don't solve it, I don't think we are the Americans that, that we know we can be. So until next time, this has been An Educated Guest. Thanks for joining us on today's episode. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe to An Educated Guest on your listening platform so you don't miss the latest episodes. For more information on Wiley University Services, please visit universityservices.wiley.com.